The New Testament reading this morning is found in Mark's Gospel, the seventh chapter. Mark's Gospel, the seventh chapter. I'll beginning, begin reading at verse 24. Mark chapter 7, beginning at verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. You have heard this reading of God's word. Now let's ask God the spirit to bless this reading to our lives. Will you pray with me? Oh Lord, open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things in your law. Quicken our hearts that we might believe on these words, to trust them as you are the trustworthy God. And help us not simply to hear these words, but to be doers of these words. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Now, if I were to walk up to these fine young ladies in the front row here, and I were to say, pick one, you would know exactly what to do, right? You'd pick one. Or if I were to say to some, uh, some of you, uh, if you asked me for something, I, and I said, what do you say? You would know what to say. You would say, please, and I would say, Pretty please? And you might even say with sugar on top, right? Now, this is not just children's things. When we learn how to ask for something and in the right way to get what we're asking for, uh, you're probably, you've probably done enough online shopping to know that if you enter this code when you check out, you'll get another 10% off. Well, uh, learning how to ask for something is often, isn't it, the key to getting what we ask for. And sometimes we wonder about the same thing with God, especially if it's something we've really prayed about a lot, that we really desire a lot, that we really need a lot. The more desperate we become, we sometimes wonder, is there a secret formula to get God to do what we need him to do? And we even sometimes do some odds calculations. If I ask God for this, what are the odds he'll give it to me? Or sometimes we just decide I'm not going to ask because what I would ask is so far beyond at least human imagination that surely God won't listen. 
in uh, this scripture passage we read this morning, no one could have, could have no one could have gone into a prayer opportunity with lower odds of being heard. We'll find out that this woman's status, where she lives and what she's asking, would at least, according to the common expectations, mean uh, she was at best a long shot for getting a positive response. She's an outsider in a land of outsiders. But she's different than those who see her as an outsider because she sees. She has true insight into the one she's asking. And in fact, her insight shows how blind others are. And so because she knows who she asks, she knows how to ask and what to ask. Because she knows what she asks, he is willing to give. The challenge for us from this story is to know who Jesus is as the one from whom we ask. Because if we know what he's offering, if we know his willingness, in fact, if we know his character as the Son of God, we will know that he is willing to give. Let's put it this way. She got the bread, so she got the bread. And our challenge is to get, that is to understand who the true bread of life is. And he will give us what we need. I want to let the story speak, not interrupt it, not break it up too much. And so let's first just walk through the story so that we understand exactly why and how it is what I've said. The setting in this story is in modern Syria or Lebanon, somewhere in that vicinity. It's outside of Israel. It's an away game. It's a road trip for Jesus. It says, and from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, Tyre was a very antagonistic coastal city toward Israel. It was the home of Jezebel, the infamous Queen uh, Ahab's queen, she was a bloodthirsty foreigner who reigned with an Israelite king in 1 Kings 16. Uh, The people of Tyre fought against the Jews during the Maccabean revolt in the period of time before the coming of Jesus. Josephus, the Jewish historian, said they were, quote, notoriously our bitterest enemies. And beyond that, beyond that and Antipathy between Jews and people of this region, Tyre itself was thoroughly pagan. If you think of Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal where Elijah did engage in a contest with Baal worshipers, it's in this area. So this is not a friendly territory to a Jewish Messiah. And yet he goes there, so it does tell us something about who the one is who goes. And besides the setting, there's a prequel to this story that we have to understand. It comes after a dispute between Jesus and the Pharisees about what makes a person clean or right before God. And the Pharisees thought, if you're careful about what you eat, you're clean before God. And this is because they observed the kosher laws, the dietary laws of Moses. And when they saw Jesus' disciples back in chapter early part of chapter 7, when they saw Jesus' disciples 
eating with unclean hands, they raised the accusation against Jesus. But Jesus' response was, you don't understand what makes a person clean or unclean before God. What did Jesus say? Some of you probably remember. It's not what goes into someone, but it's what comes out. See, Jesus understood the true source of uncleanness because he was the authoritative teacher of the law. And I mention that because the little girl's demon here, this woman's daughter, is possessed by not just a demon, but an unclean demon. So it's continuing the theme, if you will, of what makes somebody clean or right or shame-free before God. So Jesus left that scene with the Pharisees and the dispute and goes to Tyre and Sidon. And even though the Pharisees didn't come with him, they're still in the story from our point of view of reading Mark's gospel. They are background characters. Jesus is going to go to an unclean land and show what he thinks about clean and unclean matters. And so they have this encounter. Verse 24 says, Jesus entered a house and didn't want anyone to know. Now, this is shocking if you're aware of what's going on in the story Because as a Jew, entering that house would make him unclean. And especially as he is perceived as a holy man, he is uh, uh, worse than being COVID quarantined for entering this house, if that's the way things worked. He goes to a house full of unclean people. And it says here he didn't want anyone to know. Now, you, you run across this phrase or similar phrases in Mark's gospel and people always wonder what this means what isn't the aren't the four gospels to tell everybody about Jesus and didn't Jesus want people to know who he was and uh, why do we have these little indications there that said Jesus said to someone don't tell anybody what I did for you well that deserves a little explanation Mark's gospel in particular is a good good place to to think about this because it happens there the most At the beginning of his ministry, Jesus told a parable about soils and seed, the seed of the the, the gospel. And uh, at the end of that parable, he went away with his disciples and explained to them the parable. Uh, and, uh, and, And it's drawing upon the Old Testament prophets, particularly Isaiah chapter 6. But here's what it comes down to. Let him who has ears to hear, hear. Let him who has eyes to see, see. See, some people see but they don't see, and some people do see. They see with insight, and the difference is faith, a willingness to see God on God's terms and not to prejudge who God is, what he's expected to do. And so Mark's gospel has this, if you will, an unfolding story for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. And there's, there's practical reasons why Jesus tells people, now don't tell others. If, if Jesus showed up on day one and marched into Jerusalem and said, I'm here to overthrow Rome, uh, the Gospels would have been much shorter, you know, maybe like a paragraph or two, right? Um, there's also, though, uh, a very um, uh, constructive spiritual reason uh, for this whole dynamic. It's not that Jesus never wanted to be known. It's this. That understanding who Jesus is is a question to be wrestled with. You don't just get this answer and walk away. It's not just a fact that you understand and then you're done. 
In fact, Mark's gospel in particular, I, 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 I love it because it's constantly asking even the most learned and mature believer, who is Jesus? Remember, Jesus asked his disciples at the end of chapter 8 and early chapter 9, who do men say that I am? And uh, they told him what people said about him, and he said, who do you say that I am? See, I think that's a great way to read the whole gospel of Mark, asking the question, no matter if you've never met Jesus before or whether you've known him for decades, we're never done knowing him in fullness until one day we will see him face to face and we will be like him. And so that's what's going on here. Um, He doesn't just offer himself to those who will not see. But this woman sees. And so that's the 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 the, the, the setting and the and the prequel to, to this story. And so now the encounter begins. Jesus' identity is going to be unfolded in this encounter. And there's all kinds of expectations going in here. Jesus is a Republican going into a Democrat's house. Jesus is a Black Lives Matter protester going into a Blue Lives Matter house. To put it in contemporary terms, everybody has expectations. And we're going to see whose expectations actually cut through to see reality and to see him for who he really is. Jesus is in a Gentile region here and he can't be hidden. And that's what the end of verse 24 says. Even though he did not want anyone to know, he can't be hidden. Jesus cannot be hidden. He is the fact of history that is undeniable and unsurmountable and unconquerable. So here he is in this Gentile house. His disciples, they, they, they don't understand what's going on either. But this woman does. Let's, let's look at the protagonist of the story. In Matthew's gospel, she's called a Canaanite. Here, in Mark's gospel, the writer just doesn't let up on her. What he says is she was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician, a certain kind of Gentile, by birth. And the fact that she's a woman in that social world. Some have pointed to this description here, and sometimes the biggest deals are in the shortest words in a story. But here, this this little bit of commentary here on who she was tells us she has a resume of demerit. All the things that the writer Mark puts forward about this woman would tell us there's nothing a Jewish holy man will do for this woman. It's like an anti-resume. But she's driven by her desperation, isn't it? We're told that she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. She loved her daughter. She was despairing of her daughter's condition. And so her need did not cause her to observe social convention. And you see this in the Gospels. Good uh, good Presbyterians like Jairus, uh, ruler of the synagogue... Uh, they don't 
barge through the crowd. They send messengers and they, they, they write invitations and they put RSVP at the bottom and they, they set tea out waiting, you know, but, but not like the woman who had the hemorrhage, right? She reached through the crowd and touched the garment of Jesus. Well, so here, this woman, her need drives her to transgress social conventions because there's one thing she needs more than the respect and honor of her fellow people or one thing she is willing to risk being rebuffed and rejected by this revered man. She wants her daughter whole. She is a single parent with a demon-possessed child and she comes to Jesus probably because she has heard that he has authority Authority over demons. So that's who the protagonist is. Now, here we get down to the rebuff. Jesus said, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, it doesn't take long for us to do the math. If we were her, it wouldn't take long for us to do the math. Jesus is by the metaphor referring to her as a dog, or that is at least implied. Now, people struggle with this mightily. Uh, Critics of the Bible say, see, Jesus was um, um, a misogynist or a racist or something like that. Or they say, well, since Jesus was a good person, he would have never said this, and so this is part of the Bible that's not really true or historical. So people on that side of the continuum struggle with. Now, people on this side of the continuum say, um, well, Jesus really didn't mean what he said, or, or at least they're left with a dilemma. How could Jesus have said this? I met a young woman in a class that was teaching in Asia, Uh, a little over a year ago, and she stumbled mightily over this. How could Jesus call a woman a dog? That's not the Jesus I know. Well, it reminds me, I don't know if you saw a few years ago, they had these commercials, uh, and the tagline of the commercial was, uh, she throws like a girl. You see those? Now, if somebody says, you throw like a girl, that's usually an insult because of the trope that girls aren't athletic. But what this commercial did was subversive. It showed these girls throwing hard softballs, baseballs, footballs, such that the men who caught them had a hard time catching them. I wouldn't have wanted to been in the way of any of those pitches, throws, or passes. You see, that commercial took the trope and undermined the trope by embracing the trope. Jesus here, he's just a brilliant teacher. He throws out a premise that is shared by everyone around certainly by his disciples. Because he wants to probe this woman's understanding, not just of what she's asking, but her understanding of who she asks. She is heaven-bent on one thing, that is gaining release for her daughter, and she knows the man before her has authority over demons, so she embraces the premise and moves forward. On the attack in the conversation, she says, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's bread. Now, this is an immensely perceptive comeback. There are a few little details that are interesting to know. 
Uh, the word for dog here is not the worst kind of dog. It's more like the house pet kind of dog. So it's not an entirely derogatory term. But why, why this bread conversation to begin with? Well, if you go back to chapter uh, 6, you remember there is a, a multitude in the wilderness, the Judean wilderness. They're hungry, and Jesus has his disciples bring a few loaves and fishes, and he multiplies them and feeds that multitude until they are so full there are 12 baskets left over. So bread has already been introduced in the conversation. Of course, that comes out of the Old Testament and Moses in the wilderness with Israel and God providing bread from heaven for his children back then. In fact, they put a little bit of that bread in a jar and kept it in the Holy of Holies, their whole history of the temple worship. So this this woman knows something about what bread means to a Jewish holy man. But she knows something that Jesus' disciples don't yet know. That there is enough bread, not just for the children, but there's enough bread for the world. This was the promise to Abraham. God promised to bless Abraham, to make him prosperous, to give him a a progeny, a posterity, to give him a land, but not as an end in itself. Because God had said to Abraham, through you or in you all the nations of the world shall be blessed. This was Israel's great struggle throughout the Old Testament. They regarded God's promises as proprietary rather than as means for God blessing the nations of the earth. That they treated their status as insiders, as owners of the promises. And that's what the disciples are struggling with here. As we, if we were to read on to the story, she understood something about the nature of God's promises that God's people struggled to understand themselves. And that is God's promises are big promises. They're generous promises. They're universal promises to those who understand the one they ask and what he has promised. There was an expectation, and around the time of Jesus, it comes through some of the Old Testament prophets and some of the intertestamental books we call the Apocrypha, that when the Messiah came, the Messianic feast would begin again, that the bread that once came from heaven during the days of the wilderness would fill the tables of God's people again. We saw that it was beginning and back in chapter 6 when the wilderness in Judea, the multitude was fed there. But now we see it in a strange land that the Messianic feast is actually reaching out beyond the borders of God's people. Just the kind of people we read in our Old Testament reading from Isaiah chapter 65. She epitomizes those who see and perceive, who hear and understand. She accepted the terms on which Jesus responded, and because of that, she gained the blessing of the bread of heaven himself. This woman, in her desperation and in her perception, both of who she asked and what he had promised, she proved to herself more of a Jew than the Pharisees who couldn't get it. And the, Jew, and the disciples themselves who didn't get it. Luther said of this, 
passage, she asked no more than was her due. Because she came in faith, seeking the grace and mercy of Jesus. And as a result, Jesus treated her not as a dog, but as a child of Israel. She was eating the bread of Abraham. In fact, she's the first person in the Gospel of Mark to actually understand a parable. Eyes to see, ears to hear. She got the bread because she got the bread. The story goes on. It would be fun. You might have some fun tracing it. There's, there's a healing episode that comes a little bit later where there's this blind man. And Jesus heals him a little bit at first. And he can see a little bit, but not clearly. And then Jesus touches him again. And he can see clearly then. Uh, and it wasn't because Jesus uh, fouled one off. It's because that in itself is a parable of Jesus' disciples. They get it, but they don't get it. Because you only get it, first of all, when you wrestle with the question. But ultimately, the life and ministry of Jesus does not make sense until you're on this side of the cross. The bread of life who gave his life for the life of the world. She got it. And that's why she got it. So, that's the story. What difference shall it make for us if some of it's not already obvious? Well, first of all, this, this passage teaches us that God gives according to his promises. This is very important when it comes to our expectations about God and our prayer lives. We ask God for things a lot of the time that he hasn't promised, at least in this life. And some of those things are very important things to us. Health, family, companionship. Security. It's vital for us as we walk this earth under the promises of God to know exactly what it is that God has promised. On the one hand, the promises of God are few. But among those few promises is the promise of God giving himself. We have been given the spirit as a down payment of our inheritance in Christ. Everything that is Christ is ours by union with him. So to know how to ask, to know how to approach God, we have to study his promises and to understand what is the breadth and the height and the depth of the love of God which is in Christ and ask accordingly. So God gives according to his promises. That's one thing. Second of all, Jesus makes dirty things clean. Unlike holy men, unlike the rabbis of the day, if somebody became clean, they could show themselves to the rabbi to be declared clean. The the rabbis, the priests, they couldn't make people clean. But Jesus is different. Remember, he healed ten lepers. One of whom was a Samaritan, by the way, the one who came back and thanked him. You see, the law can judge who is clean and unclean, but only one can make us clean. You've heard the old Churchill joke. I can't remember exactly how it goes, but um, Churchill said to a dignified woman that she was unbecoming. She was ugly. 
And she responded, Sir, you are drunk, and you remember Churchill's comeback, but I will be sober in the morning. Well, (laughs) Churchill may have been drunk and rude, but here we see the reality that if you're unclean in the evening, in Christ you are clean in the morning. If you have committed adultery, you are a faithful you are declared faithful in the morning. If you are a user in the evening, you will be clean in the morning. The transforming power of faith means that whatever we are or once were, we are no longer by the grace of God. Because he had authority over all diseases. He is the healer and he is the one in whom we find forgiveness of sins. There is no guilt that is beyond his payment. There is no alienation that is not beyond his reconciling power. There is no discouragement that is beyond the hope which he gives. Every condition under which we strive and struggle in this life, none of those things shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ, Paul says in Romans chapter 8. Not only does God give according to his promises and Jesus makes dirty things clean, the last thing I'll mention here is Jesus confounds the proprietary. Jesus confounds the proprietary. That is, there's there's something about when you're in, you start to figure out who deserves to be in and who doesn't deserve to be in. We all want to be part of that country club where we're, we're we, when once we get in, they raise the membership standards, or the fraternity, or the sorority, or 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 or, or the organization that hires us. It, we, we once we're inside a group, we are so quick to judge who should and shouldn't be part of it, and this is particularly true of spiritual things. It, it's historically particularly true of the church. This is the problem the Pharisees had of their day. They drew a white chalk circle and policed who was in and who was out. But when you read the Gospels, you find out most of them are out and Samaritans and tax collectors and uh, uh, unethical businessmen like Zacchaeus and uh, this, this woman and the unclean woman in chapter Five, and the list goes on and on. Roman centurions. All these outsiders are brought in to show the character of God. Through, in and through Jesus Christ. And this particularly happens when we stop asking the question, who is Jesus? When we stop wrestling with who he is and especially who we are in light of him, Jesus is the savior of the world. There are going to be some very surprised people at the end of time. And part of the surprise will be among those who are left out. Jesus said this, right? There'd be sheep and goats. But a lot of the surprise are going to be those who are inside about who else is inside. So you see, that's that's the nature. Not That, that reveals our own nature to be proprietary about the promises of God. When you watch the news, read the paper, with your thumbs sitting next to you, no matter which channel you watch, 
There are going to be some people that you are furious with and some who deserve you to be furious with, and you're going to be sitting right next to them in the new heavens and earth. And they're going to feel the same thing, same way about you when they see you in the end. So just like this woman, if we know who we ask and what he has promised, we will find the bread. We will know the grace and mercy of God in Christ. George MacDonald, who was the inspiration for C.S. Lewis in, in terms of fantasy writing, George MacDonald's father was a stern Scottish Presbyterian minister. Is there any other kind? And uh, he said, I don't recall ever asking anything of my father that he refused me. Which kind of a shocking thing if you think about it. But he quickly added, I don't recall ever asking my father for something he wouldn't give me. You see, he knew his father so well, he knew how to ask such that he would always receive. What may we ask of God which he will always give us in Christ? Himself. Grace sufficient for the day. Strength in weakness. Life after death. Let's pray. Lord, help us to know you better so that we can know how to ask of you. You have promised that your heavenly father is better than any earthly father who will not give a stone instead of bread or a serpent instead of a fish. We know from the Psalms that, God, you are good and do good. Help us, Lord, to know your goodness by knowing you through the Son so that we might receive the promises. Promised first to Abraham, but given to the nations in and through your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.